coming and reporting. Very nice. Well done. Great to see what God is doing there in Poland. So we're in 1 Samuel chapter 15. If you'd like to turn there with me, 1 Samuel and chapter 15. Really enjoyed uh, that worship set and that last song, Trust and Obey, sounds so simple and yet in life circumstances sometimes it seems so complicated, uh, so, so difficult. I don't know if you found that or not, but I'd like to talk to you about that this morning, that idea of trusting and obeying with maybe a, maybe a picture that will help us understand what we're talking about when we're talking about obedience. So, so let's say that what God wants us to do is go from, from there, the beginning, uh, and obey him all the way through. So if it was a scale of 1 to 10, you've heard me talk about this before, you obey him all the way to 10, you know, so all the way to 10 would be all the way over here. Now, the real trouble comes when it doesn't make sense to us to obey all the way to 10, or we tell ourselves, well, I don't need to obey all the way to 10 if I just obey all the way to 7. So what we end up doing, you know, there's a couple things we end up doing when we, when we do this, when we obey part way rather than all the way. One of the things we can do is tell ourselves, look, look how far I obeyed. Look how much I obeyed. And we have a tendency and a, an amazing ability to overemphasize our obedience and then really underreport our disobedience. Do you do that? Overemphasize what you get right and really underreport what you get wrong. Do you ever do that? Another, another thing we end up doing is like rationalizing our disobedience and saying, well, it only really makes sense to obey this far. This last three steps, that is just, that doesn't even make sense. That would cost too much money. It would cost too many of my friends. It would be too difficult. It would cost too much time. It's too difficult to really go all the way here. So, so what makes sense to me, what I understand, what makes sense to me is to obey this far. And so that's what I'm going to do. And I'll just kind of rationalize not going all the way to 10 with obedience. So the first strategy is one of like telling half the truth, like overemphasizing and underreporting. The second strategy is rationalizing. And the third strategy of like living with disobedience is blaming. Blaming. Well, the reason I lost my temper is I had a really hard day at work. It's really my boss's fault. Well, I would, I would be a lot better at this, but my wife... Well, if you were married to him, you would understand, you know, if you had my parents, you'd do this too, right? You don't understand because you don't have parents like mine. You don't understand because you don't have kids like mine. And it's, we, we blame this gap on other people. We're going to look at a guy with a gap today in his obedience. And we're going to see how that goes. And hopefully we learn something. 
So here we are in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 1. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel. So Amalek is a people group down south of Israel. They're fairly nomadic. Can't find the cities because probably they were nomadic and difficult to find. Look, you are going to be offended by this next couple verses. Or you're not listening. Okay? You're just, you're, you're not going to like what's coming up. I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. And he's going to tell them, we'll see it in the next verse, kill every man, every woman, every child, every infant, kill all their sheep, kill all their oxen, kill everything, wipe it all out, all of it needs to die. You okay with that? I'm not okay with that. Bothers me. How, what, do, what do we do with this? It, so I thought what I should do is talk for a little bit about this with you. Okay, so the first thing to note maybe is the footnote in the ESV there, the little a uh, in the electronic version, because it's the first footnote in this chapter. If you have it on a printed page, it'll be a different number, or a different letter. But there's a footnote there that kind of explains it a little bit. Not that it makes it much easier. That is set apart or devote, that's that Hebrew word for devote, as an offering to the Lord for destruction. So they are not to, they're to destroy everything as an offering to the Lord. Which, man, they're still, God is still telling them to kill every man, woman, and child, and infant. Like, and what did the sheep do wrong? You know, what did the oxen do wrong? Why do they have to all die? But see, look, this is what I'm saying. Like, this is, number one, this is in the Bible, so we have to talk about it. And you, when you have your doubts about God, maybe this is something that you've struggled with. So I want to talk about it and be real about it with you. But this is what he's talking about with total obedience. He's, you go into battle, and you kill everything. Devote it all to God. Don't take any of it home. All of it. What do we do with this? Let's talk about this before we get into the story. Well, the first thing to note is that this is not how the kingdom of God works today. Jesus came and changed everything. So the first thing that I want to say is no one can claim to devote things to destruction, like people, to destruction today. Now, God might be calling you to devote some sin in your life to destruction but not people. Jesus came and changed everything. That's not how the kingdom of God works today. We can talk more about that, but we have a whole chapter to get through. Second thing is, Israel was not to profit from their destruction. So Israel was not to see dealing out God's justice as a, mon- as a way of making money and getting rich. They were not supposed to enjoy this. They were not supposed to benefit from it. It was supposed to be just something they did as a way of God dealing with sin. So, 
Israel was not supposed to profit from it, and that's why they couldn't save any of it. And third, this shows how much God utterly, utterly hates sin. Because they're not being destroyed because they're Amalekites. It's not that God is racist against Amalekites. They're being judged for their sin. And by the way, like it or not, this is what will happen to every unrepentant sinner at the end of all things. All sin and wickedness is headed for destruction. And so the future destruction is coming forward for the Amalekites, and Israel is called on to deal them the justice of God. Talk more about what it means to be, talk more about devoting things to destruction at the end of the message. But for now, for now I want you to see this is not how the kingdom of God works today. Part of the reason they had to kill everything is so that they didn't profit from it. And third, that this is God's judgment coming forward, that this is where the world is headed. You know, just like Rahab. I don't know if you know your Old Testament or not, but just like Rahab repented and was saved, in the same way, if the Amalekites had repented, they would have been saved. Okay, so God tells Saul through Samuel, go all the way to 10, devote everything to destruction. Does he do it? So let's read about this. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey, all of it. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Talim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, get out of here because you don't want to be caught up in this destruction. Go depart, go down among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. Wait, wait, wait. Is he supposed to do that? No. But it was really cool to have a king for a trophy. So, I mean, how can you kill a trophy? And devoted to destruction all... Let's see. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive... And devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. So he just saves Agag. He's the only one. I mean, come on. That's most of the way there. But Saul and the people spared Agag. And the best of the sheep. And the best of the oxen. And the best of the fatted calves. And the best of the lambs. And all that was good. And would not utterly destroy them. How far did they go in their obedience? Not very far. Not quite far enough. You never do that though, right? Like I never do that. Obey God kind of most of the way. And all that was despised and worthless, they, de they devoted to destruction, so they killed the stuff they don't want. And the word of the Lord came to Saul. I'm sorry, came to Samuel. Okay, this should bother you. I regret that I have made Saul king. Did you, did you just understand what I just read? 
what you just read in your Bible? Is it okay that God has regrets? Did God mess up? How can God have a regret if God doesn't mess up? More about that later on. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me. You'll see regret again in verse 29 and verse 35, by the way. For he has turned back from following me. So this is why God regrets making Saul king. He is not obeying, and he has not performed my commandments. So he obeys part of the way, but not all the way. Doesn't get all the way there. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. Wow. Sin hurts everybody. Every time. Did you hear that? Partial obedience hurts everybody every time. Samuel didn't do anything wrong. He did exactly what God told him to do every time. And he ends up angry and mad and crying all night because of somebody else's sin. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told to Samuel, Saul came to Carmel because he had something really important to do at Carmel. And behold, he set up a monument to himself after that awesome victory where he obeyed God part of the way and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, blessed be you to the Lord. Hey, good to see you. Blessings. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Had he? Well, kind of. He performed some of the commandment of the Lord. He, he performed part of the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is the bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? Funny, I hear sheep and cows. Funny that you'd bring them to battle with you. And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites. You know, it's the people. Dog got him. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen. After all, it doesn't make sense to kill them all, but it's the people that are the reason for this gap. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen. And really, we did it to sacrifice them to the Lord. So really, we had a good reason for not obeying God all the way, all the time. We had religious reasons for our disobedience. God is going to benefit from our disobedience. And the rest, we have devoted to destruction. I mean, we did kill a lot. We did, we did go a long ways towards obeying God all the way. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And so Saul says to Samuel, speak. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes. You know, this is fascinating because you know from 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 2, that Saul is a head taller than everybody else, but he is still little in his own eyes, meaning he is still desperately insecure. And you'll just see this as we continue in 1 Samuel. You'll see Saul's insecure, insecurity. I mean, I mean you, the people that I've seen that are the most likely to build monuments to themselves are usually the most insecure. 
And Saul said, though you are little in your own eyes, that is not an excuse for disobedience because you're the head of the tribes of Israel. Are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. Stop blaming the people. God made you king. Obey all the way to 10. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and devote to destruction. There it is again. The sinners. That's why you know, it's, not, it's not anything about their ethnicity. It's God judging their sin. Go and devote to destruction. The sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? And why did, you pronounce, why did you pounce on the spoil and do what is evil in the sight of the Lord? Why are you trying to make money off this mission that God has sent you on? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. Well, he kind of had. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. He kind of did. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek. Amalek. He, he, he did win. And I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people, it was the people, they're the reason for this gap. It was the people took of the spoil, the sheep and the oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice the Lord your God. After all, your God, doesn't he like sacrifices? He's going to benefit from our partial obedience. And Samuel said, has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings as in sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Like, look, what God wanted, the sacrifice God wants is not more fatted calves and more oxen and more sheep. What God wants is just for you to obey all the way to 10. That's the obedience that God wants. That's the sacrifice he's after. Trust him enough to obey him all the way to 10. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is just like, or is just as bad as, the sin of divination and presumption as, as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord. Now look, there are so many times in my life when I, when I would want to obey God part way, that I would say, I am not rejecting the word of the Lord. I Look how far obeyed. I mean, look how far I came in this obedience. This is not rejection. And God would say, that is rejection if you don't obey all the way to ten. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people, and obeyed their voice. I'm just telling you, Saul is going to struggle with insecurity the rest of his life. And so he's blaming the people for, like, they're the reasons I can't, I can't obey all the way to ten. I was afraid of them. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord. Let's not play this game. I'm not going to pretend that everything's okay. And neither should you. And the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And Samuel turned to go. And Saul seized the skirt of his robe. And it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day. And has given it to a neighbor of yours. Who is better than you? 
And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. Oh, that was a kick in the shins. What did he say in verse 11? Exactly, Cam. He said, I I regret making Saul king. And now he's saying, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. Well, which one is it? Does God regret or does God not regret? For he is not a man that he should have regret. God doesn't have regret. He doesn't lie. He doesn't make mistakes. Are you kidding? But I thought he did. Watch for verse 35. Then he said, I have sinned. Yet honor me now before the elders of my people. Whose people are they? They're God's people. Of my people and before Israel. And return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. Okay, you get God, but I get the people. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. And Agag said, surely the bitterness of death has passed. Everything's going to be okay. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. There's a hint there at all the evil um, Agag had done. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gabeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul because, because sin hurts everybody. Partial obedience hurts everybody. Not just you. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. All right, so let's talk about what it means that the Lord regretted before we talk about what to do with this, with this passage. So I understand verse 11 and verse 35 to be saying the Lord regretted making Saul king, meaning the Lord has pity on his people for what they're going to suffer with Saul as king. The Lord has compassion for his people. It's it's the people that have cried out and demanded a king like Saul. And so God gives them exactly what they asked for in a king. And now God sees what is going to happen to them. And he sees what is happening to them. The kind of leader that they wanted, they are living with. And God feels compassion for his people. But this does not mean... That God made a mistake in making Saul king. It doesn't mean that God made a mistake in allowing Saul to obey halfway, to obey partway. So, verse 29 is true that God is not a man that he should lie be inconsistent with himself, or that God should make a mistake. He's not a man. But he does feel pity, and he does feel concern. He does feel compassion for his people when he sees them living in the mess they've made.
So what should we do with this text? I mean, what tell us about God? Well, to me, the irreducible minimum of what this is saying is that God demands total obedience. That obeying to seven or eight or nine is not enough. Will not get you there. What God demands is total obedience. You can see that, right? From the life of Saul where he obeys part way, but he doesn't obey all the way. So what should we do? Well, we should obey all the way and not part way. I mean, that's just what the text is making clear. So how do we know when we're not doing this? You know, what are some markers we can, we can hold on to? Well, the first one I would have that I would offer you is where we started kind of in the beginning, and that's be careful when you're overemphasizing your righteousness or your obedience or the stuff you're getting right and underreporting what you're getting wrong. Be careful of the half-truths. Be careful of that. When, when you're looking at all the things you got right, like you're going, you're going, I got this right, 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 I got this right. I should pass. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break the curve. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make the curve. I'm going to be okay because I got this much right. And then underemphasize or underreport the, the stuff we're disobeying in. Be careful. When you see yourself doing that, when you see yourself doing that, it is time to repent. Second, be careful of rationalizing. So when you hear yourself saying, it doesn't make sense to obey that last little bit. I understand this much, so I'm going to obey this far. But that last, that is really unreasonable for God to ask me to obey that far. So I'm not going to do that, but I will do this. And we have just an amazing, amazing ability to rationalize sin. Be careful. Time to repent. Hear the warning sirens going off when you hear yourself rationalizing in your own head. And third, maybe, maybe most important, be careful of blaming. Well, you know, I would obey all the way. But the reason I can't obey all the way is because of the people I live with, or the people I don't live with, or the people I work for. Otherwise, I would. I was telling one of you before the service, because uh, you were like, no, now don't step on my toes this morning. And I said, look, dude, there's, there's nothing convicting in this sermon. Man, who, who, who can escape this? Who doesn't tell half-truths? Who doesn't make themselves look better than they are? Who doesn't do that? Who doesn't rationalize? Who doesn't blame? Which of us gets this right? All the time. Because part of you might be going, well, how, much do I, how far do I have to get to go to heaven? Well, if you're going to depend on the law, better get all the way every time. 
Would you turn with me to Romans 3.23? So, find the New Testament. Starts with Matthew. Then Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. So find, find Romans. Pretty long book, just after Acts. I'll give you another second to find your way to Romans. Romans 3:23 reads, "For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God." Well, there it is. Well, there it is. All have sinned. All have fallen short. Of the glory of God. We've all done it. And probably more realistically. It would look like this. We've all done it. We've all sinned. That's true. But thank God. Romans 3.24 is also true. I just want you to see this in your Bible. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all Saul. We're all the Amalekites. We all deserve destruction. Verse 24. But we are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So what God gives you as a gift is justification. So he makes it just as though you had never sinned. And what we learn as we study through Romans, and by the way, I hope to do Romans after 2 Samuel. If you're wondering where we're headed next, that's a long ways out from now, but I'm hoping to do Romans. But what we learn is that God gives us, he, he takes our sin onto himself, and then he gives us his righteousness. So all God sees is the righteousness of Christ when he looks at our lives. And that is a free gift. It's not something that we work really hard to achieve. It's just something we receive by grace through faith. Now, how does that happen? Well, by grace through faith as we receive this gift. But look at how God makes this possible in verse 25. Well, let me get a running start with verse 24. And we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is put forth, or that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Propitiation is a wrath satisfying sacrifice. So the wrath of God is satisfied, is propitiated, is God looks at Christ's sacrifice and says, that's enough. Here's the thing. We all deserve to be devoted to destruction, but Christ was devoted to destruction in our place. He died so that we could live. He died 
he was devoted to destruction. Because if you're like, all I can think about is like how God would devote people to destruction. Well, hear this. He was devoted to destruction in your place and in my place. He became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. This is what we're about to celebrate as we receive the Lord's Supper. We're about to really remember Christ's sacrifice and how he bore our sin. As you remember and think about Christ's death for our sin, I just also want to resonate in your minds the word of our Lord. Go and sin no more. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your sacrifice for our sin. That you died in our place. That we can look to you and trust you for the forgiveness of sins. And Lord, help us to live righteous lives because we have the righteousness of Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.